On Sunday evenings, we have picked back our study up on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I would encourage you tonight uh, to come back, if you would. Uh, I will be talking about Jesus' teaching on divorce. And you understand that what Moses said is just as inspired as what Jesus said. We forget that because we had KJV Bibles that had everything in red. And we thought that was the only thing inspired because Jesus said it. But the fact of the matter is... Everything in the Word is inspired by God. But it is important how Jesus will tie together His teaching on marriage, divorce and remarriage, as it has been given to us in the Old Testament, in particular Deuteronomy 24. So I would invite you to come for that tonight. And in light of that, I want to say that Mr. Leroy and Judy Morissette have been married now for 62 years today. All right. There they are in the back. Look back there. All right. They're waving. I mean, they're just as happy as the day they proposed, right? And got married in front. Yep. Amen. Now, Leroy told me to say that. He slipped me a 20, but no, God is good. Let me begin our sermon time. We're going to talk about the gospel sword. Listen to the great apostle. You understand that his letters came out of his missionary journeys. Galatians, some might say, is the oldest of his writings. But here's what he says to the church of Galatia. Verse 6 of chapter 1. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now check this out. This is amazing. What an amazing statement. Listen to what Paul says. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathematized. That literally means to hell with them. If they preach any gospel other than what Paul brought to them inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, which is salvation by grace... Through faith. Only in Jesus Christ and His atoning work. If someone, even an angel or anyone else, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if it's not once, he says it twice. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Man, what a statement. Here, Paul speaks with shock and grief that they had moved away, notice, from the grace that is in Jesus Christ. They've moved away. And we know uh, the storyline or the thematic structure in Galatians. And Paul wants them to know that their freedom is in Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you that this is not only a warning that the church in Galatia needed to hear and heed. But this is a warning that we as churches today need to hear and heed. That it's very easy to move away from the gospel of grace. I want to remind you folks, there is no other gospel. There is no other gospel than the atoning work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's by grace that you are saved. And remember, Paul is preaching and teaching in Acts, in synagogues, to people who believe that you were saved through Mosaic law or through the works of the law or outward conformity to practices. And Paul reminds them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So here is Jesus saying, hey, you see these long flowing robes and all these Pharisees who look like they're religious on the outside. They've conformed to the external laws. But on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones. They're whitewashed sepulchers. They're lost and headed to hell. And they thought they had it together. They thought they had a righteousness But it was only man's righteousness. Man's righteousness will not save your soul. You have to have a righteousness that supersedes that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's something that comes on the inside. And it only comes through Jesus. It's a righteousness that is given to you. So listen, folks. We live in seductive, subversive times. Where the gospel is not preached in every pulpit. And on your TV TV channels. You don't hear the true gospel. What we believe about the character of God, the identity of man, the nature of sin, and the work of Christ are put on display as we articulate the gospel. Not only from this pulpit, but as you witness to people and articulate the gospel, this is vitally important. Our evangelistic efforts must avoid any hint of moralism that you can fix yourself and come to God. Or that if you keep a certain duty or a law, or, or that you can come to Christ, or, or that you are uh, saved because you do certain things. Folks, that's a false gospel. That's not how we are saved. And we're going to sin against Christ. And we're going to misrepresent the gospel when we suggest to sinners that what God demands is some kind of moral improvement. Law keeping and moral obedience is not the gospel that saves. It's not a gospel at all. The only gospel that saves and the gospel we must proclaim is the grace of God that is made available through Jesus Christ's atoning work on our behalf. To God be the glory, right? Hey, that's good preaching wherever you are, right? Because it is the grace of God. Now, that leads us into Acts 14. We get a snippet of the gospel activity in Iconium. Remember? The disciples go and they've been at Pisidian Antioch for quite a while and they get run out of town. And what do they do? They shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them because they've rejected the gospel. And they move 75 miles to Iconium and they're getting ready to preach the word there. The gospel sword that goes forth wounds and convicts and it brings life. To those who believe. Yet it's also a sword that wounds and convicts. And instead of bringing life, it causes uh, the the poison of pus to come up in your life. A strong analogy, but that's about the truth. It's a poison that comes up in your life in the presence of unbelief. And it can cause people to lash out in amazing ways against the people of God. Thus you see that all over our world today. Where people, Christians, are being killed. Why? Because unbelief brings about this poison. So the same sword, gospel sword, right? Y'all heard the title? Right? The question today is going to be which side of the sword are you on? Are you on the side that wounds and convicts but brings life? Sword of the Spirit. God's Word. Gospel of Jesus Christ. Or are you on the side of the sword that cuts and wounds but pushes you further and further into unbelief because of of uh, disbelief, lack of belief, disobedience to the gospel. Those things are going to be manifested in this passage today. It's a sword that comes and brings peace between God and man. But it also is a sword that brings division. 
And again, we've got this snippet of the gospel's activity penetrating into Iconium. And you will see how that Paul stands upon the gospel and preaches it, much like Galatians. Not another gospel, the only gospel. Let's read our text. 14, beginning in 1, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke, I love this, in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelievers, the unbelieving Jews, stirred up the Gentiles, here it is, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time. How about this response to opposition? They just camped out, right? The apostles remained a long time. Check it out. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His, say it. What kind of salvation do we have? Any other teaching is not a gospel. Paul says, if it's not the message of grace, it's not a gospel message. Right? God saving sinners is not a help wanted sign on the door of heaven. What God does for sinners is called salvation. It's what He does for you. And it's all about grace. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace. And what did God do? He granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city, check this out, were divided. Gospel sword, right? Split it right down the middle. People were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it, that being the disciples or apostles, and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, I want to give you three things, three delineations, three movements in the passage. There's more than three, but there are at least three big movements in the passage I want you to think about. First, an effective witness will remain faithful in proclaiming the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. And that's what you see in verses, uh, in the opening verses of 1 through 3. They're continuing to speak boldly the word of God. A great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. They're, they've just left an area of intense opposition. And you would think when you're opposed like that and you're at the brink of being killed for the gospel that you might just quiet yourself for a little while and not speak. But notice, they continue to do exactly what God had commissioned them to do. They were an effective witness who were faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ even in the face of opposition. There's no doubt that the persecution emboldened them to preach and teach with more power. It's profound how Paul says this. Notice he goes into the synagogue. What do we know about that? This is his evangelistic and missionary strategy. The first thing he does in a city is to hit the synagogue. He goes in. I don't know what kind of attire he had on, but he always got a voice in there, did he not? He was always able to preach the Word. And that's what he did. That was the missionary strategy. Why? Because you had Jews and you had proselytes and you had God-fearers who were hearing the Word. And so Paul used this as his strategy. They went in. But notice this. They spoke in such a manner. Do y'all know that preaching is not a matter of indifference? Preaching is important. That word proclaimed, uh, preaching, 
to proclaim the gospel. Paul was in that mode of standing or sitting, no matter what the condition is. He's forth-telling. He's preaching the word. And I love the wording here. They spoke in such a manner that many believed. Now, we saw last week that God appointed those who believed to eternal life. But here you see the human element that God uses. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel? As a means for that individual to hear and believe. And so Luke zeroes in on this. That it is God working through the preaching and teaching of the word as a means to convict souls. The Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the manner of preaching, ladies and gentlemen, needs to be persuasive. And powerful. And passionate. Phillips Brooks would say that uh, preaching is truth mediated through personality. Hey, if the Bible's boring to you, heaven doesn't have any other alternative for you. Right? The preaching of the Word is the basis of what's going on here. They preached in such a manner. It was earnest teaching and preaching. And we can say biblically that God is pleased to own this kind of preaching. To use it to change people's lives. Listen to how Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 4.13. If you can't turn there fast enough, which you can't, listen here. It says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and I so spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Paul is persuasive. Deep down in his heart, he believes what he is preaching. And that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? To believe what you are proclaiming and what you are preaching is the Word of God. Listen to chapter 5, verse 11. The Bible says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. In the preaching act, one of my goals is to persuade you to come to Christ. You teach it and you preach it that way. And you allow God to work in the heart. So these guys went up to the synagogue and they preached in such a way. They preached the gospel with precision. Notice Luke says, Jews and Greeks believe. This is a good part of the sermon, right? As the Word of God goes forth, people receive Jesus. People come to Him by grace through faith. Or He comes to them and they respond by grace through faith. And they're saved. And the Bible tells us that many of them believe. Yet, that's the good part of the text. But yet the Bible tells us that there were certain among them but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So there were also others who did not believe. I've said this to you numerous times, and I guess many preachers have. We know that when God is at work, someone else is at work. And that's the enemy. And he is sowing his seeds of distortion and destruction as God is doing a mighty work. It was true here in Iconium and it's also true today in our world and in our churches that the enemy is at work as God is at work. The ones who were disobedient to the gospel stirred up the people. The supreme disobedience, I hope you know this, is the refusal to believe the gospel. We talked about that last week. Don't want to go back over that, but that is the supreme act of disobedience is to refuse to believe the gospel. To believe is to obey the gospel and to disbelieve is to be disobedient to the gospel. There are only two qualifications. There are only two classifications of people under the ministry of the word as it is preached 
or as you share the gospel with people and proclaim the good news. You only have two classifications of people. Those who are in that mode of obedience to the word and have believed, and those who are in the mode of disobedience and are in unbelief. Y'all do know that, right? There's no middle ground. There's no neutral. Uh, You can't take the gear shift and stick it in neutral and think you're going to be all right. There are only two classifications in all of life. Those who are believing and those who dwell in unbelief. Aren't you thankful that the Spirit of God and the grace of God and the work of Christ can move a person of unbelief to a state of believing? That's why I'm preaching to you today, right? In a lot of ways, I'm preaching for those and to those who are not part of the body as of now, but Lord willing, you will be. That God will save your soul. So, two classifications. This morning is true as I preach. Disobedient realm. So, well, that's kind of harsh. No, that's Bible. You're either of your father, the devil, or you're saved and you're of the heavenly father. There's no middle ground here. So, however, there's only two categories, the believing and the unbelieving. Listen again to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? As we give out the gospel of Jesus Christ and as we preach the gospel, we are giving out. We are emitting a fragrance. You are emitting an aroma as you give out the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is for those who hear, it is an aroma of death unto death for those who are in unbelief. But for those who are being saved, it is the aroma of life unto life. That's what the gospel sword does. It, the gospel as it's lived out in your life and as you're at work and as you're going through life and you're being obedient to the commission, you're, you're emitting a, an aroma that to some it is life and peace and glory, but to others it's death unto death. It's amazing. There are others who will hear the exact same message. Uh, to ones it was life to life. To others it will be death to death. The ESV says this group poisoned the minds of the people. Now, again, this was an act against the people. Six times when it uses that word against the people, poison the people, against the people, attacking the people, six times it's used in the book of Acts. Five times it has to do with physical acts. Okay, Once it has to do with spiritual acts of the mind. You're looking at it. They poisoned the minds of the people. They go on the attack to poison their minds against the brothers and what's being communicated to them. This hostility that is present when the gospel is preached. There's mistreatment. And it's not the physical realm, but it's the spiritual poisoning of the minds. This was not the attitude that sometimes we see today when people say something like this. I'm glad Jesus works for you. He's just not for me. That's not what you see here. This is an attack to poison the minds of those who are hearing the word. It was an attempt to poison the people's minds through slander. Notice it was against anyone who dared to believe the message because it says against the brethren or against the brothers. The enemy is an expert in turning unbelief into a contagious epidemic. Thus, let me introduce you to the United States of America. Right? 
Just that poison of unbelief and rebellion. You know, young people, I know some of you went to the prom last night, so wake up, right? Their eyes are so heavy. I got some toothpicks in my pockets, guys, right? And I see some of the girls looking like this, like, ooh, trying to stay awake. But let me address the young people. This is why you need to be real careful who your friends are. Unbelief spreads like a contagion. There's, it's also true for adults, but normally speaking, we say this to our younger generation first, that you have to be really, really careful who your friends are. Their poison will jaundice your priorities and your perspective in life. It's going to come. You're going to be around people. You have to choose your friends wisely. You will end up just as poisoned as they are. It's also true for adults. This did not stop God's messengers. Don't you love this? Uh, These dudes are out there trying to poison people away from the brethren. But God's servants just decide to stick around a little longer. Don't you love that resiliency? Opposition's mounting. Uh, People are speaking out in slander, trying to poison the minds of those who are hearing that you're saved by grace through faith. And you could probably hear some of those Jews saying, What about Moses? We're going to stick with Moses. Although Jesus said that Moses longed to see my day. I'm sure Paul would say some of these things on the side. He'd be thinking certain things. But here is Paul in this resiliency. Now, let's just go ahead and say it. Heaven's going to be heaven because of Jesus. Right? But, but still, don't you look forward to meeting Paul? I mean, this guy was resilient, passionate. And he had a stick-with-it-ness like none other. And here is someone who sticks with it. He's gritty. He's determined. Opposition can be terrible. You know that? It can, it can make you question yourself. And you said, Preacher, have you ever been questioned? You ever questioned yourself about the truth? Nope. Nah. There, there are certain times when, obviously, we start looking at the angle and we see the fallout of standing for the truth and we have to check ourselves and say, did I handle this the right way? How, how is this falling out? But the fact of the matter is, Uh, We are guilty at times of believing that a little bit of opposition is proof that the Lord is closing a door. Folks, it could be the the indication that the door is swung wide open and God intends for you to have a little bit of opposition because He controls all things. The opposition may mean that the enemies of the gospel become friends of Jesus as well. Those who are opposing may end up on their knees before Christ. So, it's also true in the pastorate. Often uh, preachers get a little opposition from preaching the truth and they go AWOL. Or they think, well, it's time to go somewhere else. But you know what happens if you're a preacher of the truth? When you go somewhere else, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have more opposition. So I'm not going to tuck tail and bail if you give me a little opposition of preaching the truth. I mean, you just have to run me off. But I'll preach somewhere else, right? No matter where that is, but when it comes to the truth, when it comes to... Uh, opinions. That's a different thing. But when it comes to the truth of the Word of God, we must stand. And so, Paul doesn't water down the message. As a matter of fact, he begins to oppose his opponents. Boy, that's incredible, isn't it? He's like, bring it on. And he, he, he lingers long and he publicly continues to, to give out the gospel message. Continue to pre- continues to preach. Making bold proclamation, independence upon God. And notice this, testifying of the grace of God. Again, back over in 2 Corinthians 5.20, just listen. The Bible says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, 
God making His appeal through us. Therefore we implore you. So as Paul preached and persuaded, he knew that it was God who was working, not himself. He knew that God was working through the sermon. It was Paul's voice that you heard audibly, but it was God working through him. And he knew this as he preached. Bold proclamation. What are they preaching? According to this passage, they're preaching the message of grace. What is it that upset the religious opponents? Grace. Grace upset them so much that they got so mad that they wanted to put these people under a pile of rocks. We know what he was preaching. He was preaching grace. He's preaching against religious leaders. He's preaching to people who think they're saved through keeping the law. And so they were mad enough to kill them. Grace tends to give people an unspeakable sense of relief and joy. Boy, do you remember that day you remember that you thought in your mind, God, you're saving me by grace. Nothing that I can perform. It's all of you. And you've quickened my spirit so that I can believe. You've loved me. That's grace. Right? Romans 5, 6. But God commendeth his love. That's that's verse 8. Verse 6 talks about he loved us when we were unlovable. In verse 8, he demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners... He still loved us and extended grace to us. Do you remember the day when you come to realize that you're a recipient of grace? Right? I mean, that's a joyful thing. That you've been qualified for glory. Translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. You've been forgiven, freed, and transferred. Hallelujah. Paul was absolutely convinced as he proclaimed that. That there would be those who exalted in grace. But at the same time, there would be those... You know, you know what the default set is in the human heart? Works, righteousness. When you hear the gospel, the default setting is, whew, your, your human nature is to run to, I'm not that bad. As a matter of fact, I've done a lot for the church. Uh, I was a deacon. I was a Sunday school teacher. Whatever else. You can be baptized, right? So many times, tadpoles, know your social security number. But that will not qualify you for heaven. The works will not do it. And so when you're sitting in that position, you're thinking, hey, in self-righteousness, you think you're good enough. But in reality, you're not. And you're really in a worse condition than you think you are before God. And so there it is. As that gospel is preached, you've got those where grace is in. You invite that into your life. But on the flip side, you've got those who are enraged by it. They're thinking that day, you're telling us that a crucified Jew is the source of grace? We believe that God gives us grace by what we do. Folks, that's how they lived. It was like, uh, it was like early on, you be careful here, and now, it's in many ways in Catholicism, that's the way it is. Uh, the sacraments are a means of grace. No, they're not. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus only for salvation. Not anything else that you can perform. So, here they are staying put with this kind of boldness. Just think about how difficult that is. I mean, you folks are, you're, you're a good group to preach to. You are. Now, some of you act like you were weaned off on pickle juice. But still, <laughs> when I look at you, you at least act like you're alive. Okay? You give some kind of, even if some of you knuckleheads would go, rrr, rrr. you know, you make some kind of response to the preaching. But just imagine if you were Paul. These people were not friendly to the gospel. 
The more he preached on grace, it just rubbed them wrong. It made them mad. And again, in their defense, that's all they'd ever thought of. They had, ten, they had the ten words of Moses, and they put a hedge of 655 laws around it to protect themselves. And even though they treated people wrongly, and were, uh, even, though, even though everything inside of them was skewed and wrong, boy, on the outside, they thought they had it right. But the fact of the matter is, they were lost. And many of them heard grace and recoiled against it. And what was God doing? He was giving accompanying signs and wonders and miracles along with His apostles as they preached the Word. Now, God doesn't do things willy-nilly. There was a reason for the signs and wonders. Why? Because it was together with the gospel presentation. And God was authenticating the work of the messenger by these signs and wonders. Can you just imagine the synagogue sitting that, sitting that day when in Iconium, as Paul preached? Think about his receptivity of the people's reception to the Word as Paul is preaching in the marketplace. Not everybody was friendly. They came to distract and take away the message. They were agents of Satan trying to pluck up the gospel seed as it was sown into hearts. And here is Paul, undaunted in his task, day after day after day, he's preaching boldly the grace of Jesus. Hallelujah. You did good. That's point one, right? An effective witness will remain faithful in proclaiming the gospel of grace. Now, the pick up in verse 4. Secondly, delineated here, the proclamation of the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ will divide people. He was faithful as a witness to proclaim the grace of God. And what happened in verse 4? Straight out phrase that the people were, say it, divided. The people were divided. In verse 4, they're divided. The whole town is. This uh, cohort of, of uh, gospel-proclaiming preachers are causing waves. Right? They're turning the world upside down by the preaching of the Word. Accompanied by signs, and wonders, and miracles. The Word was dividing people here. You know what that word is, divide? It's the word schism. When we hear that word schism, we think, oh my goodness. But here is is speaking of the fact that as the gospel is preached, it begins to divide people. And that sword of the gospel goes straight down through the middle of that civilization. And it divides into two distinct camps. Those who believe and those who disbelieve. Those who come to faith in Christ and those who reject. Some sided in opposition to the gospel with the Jews, and others sided with the apostles and Christ. That's what the text says, verse 4. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. You know, we live in a culture where if you have any sense of division or a schism, it is inherently bad. Well, we don't want any schisms. We don't want any division. But let me remind you that there is a gospel schism that has been ordained by Jesus. Y'all remember Jesus, right? Gentle, meek, and mild. Right? Flip over to Matthew's gospel with me. Here's what Jesus had to say about the gospel. Matthew, I do want you to see this one, so I'm going to give you at least five seconds. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. One, two... Matthew 5, excuse me, Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Listen to what Jesus had to say about the gospel.
The Bible says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Wow. I thought he was the Prince of Peace. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my name's sake will find it. Now these are the words of the Prince of Peace. And he clearly states that he did not come to bring peace but to bring a sword. Now, of course, the ultimate peace is between God and sinners. You do know when, Jesus, when the angel said, a peace on earth, goodwill toward men, that's not a universal statement of peace. We know there wasn't peace at all when Jesus came to the earth. What it's speaking of is peace for those in whom he finds favor. Or that you're in him. That's when you have peace, when you're reconciled to God. But this is talking about a different kind of subject. In other words, there are those who oppose Christ, and then there are those who are loyal to Jesus. And folks, every time this causes a division, we call it a gospel schism. The sword of the gospel can separate even the closest of relationships. This happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into our lives. When one person has absolute loyalty to Jesus and the other does not, it causes a schism or a division. The sword will go right through the dearest of relationships on earth. Discipleship demands it, right? If we're not willing to pay the price, Jesus said you're not worthy to be my disciples. Some of you are thinking, well, I don't guess I want to be a disciple. I'll just be comfortable being a believer. Can't be both. Can't be a believer without being a disciple. You never had it to begin with. If you're not willing to be a disciple, you're not saved. Period. Because the Bible teaches that a disciple is a believer. And a believer is a disciple. We need to get this straight. He made, when he calls you and saves you, he calls you as a disciple. But you're either a good one or a bad one. But you're still a disciple. And here, there's this division that is created. And unless you're willing, Jesus said, to put Jesus above all earthly relationships and above all other loyalties, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Make no mistake about it. The gospel comes at times. And it separates. And some of you know this experience very well, and you know it painfully well in your own family of what the gospel can do and how even among those of the faith, sometimes the gospel to them shouldn't be so divisive. And they're thinking, now why should you go over to India? Why don't you just stay here? I mean, can't you pastor a church? That may be worse, right? Can't you just do this for the Lord? Do you have to go all out? I mean, do you have to be all in for Jesus? <laughs> you better believe it. And that's even true for you, whether you go to the foreign mission field or not. You're either all in or you're not in at all. And so, the, can you hear the language of the sword, of the Spirit, and what the gospel does? Make no mistake about it. The gospel comes in at times and it separates. The gospel has divisive power. A gospel that never says that supreme loyalty to Jesus will set you apart is a gospel that won't save. Because our gospel says, 
if you're, supreme, if you're saved, you're supremely loyalty, loyal to one. You're so loyal that you'll say, let the dead bury the dead. Boy, that's pretty loyal, isn't it? Are y'all getting this? I mean, you got your thinking caps on. Uh, I think I woke up the prom people, right? Because we are. We're thinking about what the Word says. Loyalty. You say, well, you know what? I didn't read the fine print at the bottom of page 20 when I got saved. I mean, look, folks, this is not the fine print at the bottom of page 20. This is what the New Testament teaches. Y'all got a Bible? Do you have a Bible? I challenge you to read it. And you'll find out that Jesus said this not once, not twice, but many, many times. It's called demands of discipleship. And it's speaking of the fact that the gospel, on occasion, is going to divide. And here it is in Iconium. And there's no question about it. The gospel sword, boom, right through the middle of families. You know full well that some of those people that came to the synagogue were brothers and sisters with others in the synagogue. Some of them came to faith in Christ and some of them did not. Some of them were, the, were belligerent against the gospel, poisoning the people. But yet you had a sister who loved Jesus. How about a husband and wife? Can you imagine this conversation? Husband comes home and he's, he's gone over to the local coffee shop. And he's met with the other religious gurus. And he comes back and says, man, I ain't putting up with this stuff. And wife says, what do you mean? Well, this, what these guys are preaching. And she says, well, you know, I just trusted Christ as my Lord. And grace has changed my life. The grace of Jesus. Well, I'm not going to put up with that. She says, well, you know what? I'm going to choose to follow Christ. No matter what you do. Son, that causes division. Maybe she said it like this. I love somebody now more than you. And it's Jesus Christ. You ladies willing to say that to your husbands? No matter how they live? You husbands willing to say that to your wife? That loyalty to Jesus supersedes your loyalty to your spouse. That's what's wrong with our world today in Christian circles. Our loyalties to children and to parents and to, and to loved ones often hurts our service to the king. Boy, it's quiet in here. But it does. Why? Because we put so many other things in front of the Lord. And Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple unless you're willing for all of your loyalties and supremacies to fall to the side and Jesus Christ alone be number one. You know, some of you need this in your own life, don't you? You know full well you've been a fence straddler and that thing is about to cut you in half. You know what you need to do? Today, you just need to give it all to Christ. Say, Lord, I want to be your disciple. No turning back and grabbing the plow. I'm on with it and I'm coming with you because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly the decision we need to make today. I know it's getting late and I'm preaching up a storm, right? But think about this. Not only do we have to be effective witnesses by proclaiming what the Bible says and His grace and salvation, no other. But it is going to cause division. There's going to be hatred to the gospel. And I want to remind you that if you begin to be vocal in your proclamation of the, the fact that you can only be saved through Christ's atoning work, guess what? You're going to be opposed for that. Here's the last thing. Boldness and wisdom combine to produce an effective evangelistic strategy. Boldness and wisdom combine to produce an effective evangelistic strategy. And due to the time, let me just tell you what's going on here. Uh, they hear word that the people have been poisoned, and they want to stone you. And what does Paul and the other guys do? They don't act stupid, right? They use wisdom. Sometimes it's God's will for you to stay and remain. Sometimes it's time for you to get out of there. And you know what they thought? Let's live to preach another day. 
Right? That's wisdom put together with a gospel strategy. Boldness, you better believe it. Why do I tell you that? Because when you get down to verse 20 and 21, the same guys that preach the gospel, hey, keep in mind, when they left Iconium, what did they leave? You're sitting in one. Well, you're sitting in a building, but what are you? You're the church. So what did he leave behind? Baby Christians who desire the pure milk of the Word of God that they may grow. What are we going to do about them? Well, Paul left them because he left them in God's hands. Y'all listening? He left them in God's hands. And so you think, well, what an exodus. What about the people who trusted Christ that have no leaders? God will take care of that part, right? But when you get down to 20 and 21, you'll find out that in Paul's missionary journeys, he makes his turn right back through Iconium and strengthens the brethren again. Isn't that awesome? That is bold proclamation. It's not cowardly for them to pull up and leave and go somewhere else. Why? Because God is in control and they use wisdom. Guess where they went? They went to backwater woods parts of the area. They, they went down where the gospel probably would have never reached had there not been opposition. So God uses persecution as a catalyst to get the gospel to some backwoods places of Lyconia and Lystra and Derby. As a matter of fact, these were the hillbillies. They would have had in their truck, probably rode around with a deer rifle. All right? They probably, more than likely, had gun racks. And they had a stick on the back window that says NRA. Okay? <laughs> There's no doubt these are backwoods hillbillies in that day. But you know what? They need to hear the gospel too. And what an awesome strategy. What do they do? They didn't go down there and start saying, well, we've been persecuted, let's dumb down the gospel and make it relevant for the people. They go down there with the same message and God blesses it. And people in the backwater, in the backwoods, they get saved too. Isn't God good? Hey, that's what's going on. Boldness. And sometimes we need some of that, that we're not going to drink the water over in Taiwan. I accidentally got some of that water in my mouth brushing my teeth, and son, I like to die. you got to use some wisdom when you're out witnessing for the cause of Christ. But here, the sword of the gospel causes the poison to rise in those who are in unbelief. Why? Because grace is preached. Could it be that a truly God-owned church working under His leadership is not known by the friends it attracts, but the enemies? That oppose it. If you really get on fire for the gospel, you'll be, no, you'll be known more by the enemies you have than the friends you have. I'm telling you, folks, you say, I don't, I don't believe. Have you read the Bible? If you read the Bible, you'll see that they were well known by their enemies that oppose the gospel. And I think if we get busy speaking the gospel, we will be better known by our enemies than our friends. There's only two groups in this room today. And there's absolutely no hiding from the Lord. He knows. Where do you stand? What side of the gospel sword do you fall on? What a question. Father, we just bow before you. God, I wish and I would pray that 30 people would fall on the saving side of the sword today. I wish it would be 50. But the truth of the matter is, you said you would build your church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What you commissioned me to do is to preach the gospel. Preach the word. You would save souls. God, we're at your mercy. If anybody is affected by the word, it will be because you do it. God, would you do that today?
Would you be pleased to work? And Father, not only uh, is that true for lost people, but Lord, when we preach the Word, it even causes divisions and factions sometimes in the church, among the body. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, Paul says, there are factions among you. And Paul turns around and says, basically, it's a good thing because your genuineness is being proved. Lord, I'm so thankful that Martin Luther stood against the church in 1517. We would not be standing here today if he had not. Sometimes we even have to stand against some in the body and say, it's not going to be that way. We're going to preach the Bible. And Lord, thank you so much that your word is given to us. It's precious. And it's much better to be divided through the word than united with error. We're not going to do it. We're going to, we're going to be divided with truth. We're going to let your truth speak. But what, but what an awesome, sweet spirit uh, there is in a church when we're united in the truth of God's word. And that we believe in the gospel of Jesus and his atoning work only to save souls. Not a different gospel. The only gospel. Lord, would you work in our time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.